Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. Today's episode is a recording of an event held live via Zoom during the COVID-19 pandemic. It is a conversation between Professor Tony Birch and internationally renowned singer, songwriter, author and activist Billy Bragg about Billy's latest essay, The Three Dimensions of Freedom. A quick warning, as this is an internet recording, there has been some effect on the sound quality of the episode. First up, here's Billy on the differences between performing and writing an essay. When I'm on stage, you kind of said it in the question, I'm riffing on ideas. I'm giving you a riff of an idea that I'm trying to send you away with a different perspective so that you look at the world differently and take action if you can. That's the most I can do. I, I can't change the world from where I'm standing. Only the audience can do that. But with the, the opportunity to write the, the pamphlet, um, I had an op- opportunity there to expand on an idea that I'd been riffing on for a while, which is accountability. And I think since the um, end of the Cold War, we've come into a, a, a post-ideological period of politics where um, the, the language of Marxism, the language we used to talk to one another about politics in the 20th century, late 20th century, no longer resonates with people. So looking for big ideas that, that offer some parameters for um, the, the discourse that's going on, whether that's the discourse of politics or the discourse that we're having ourselves in, in, in micro and social media, some parameters I thought would be helpful because back in the day, each of us had our own ideology, whichever perspective we were coming from. And that ideology allowed us to frame the world in a, in a way that we could then discuss it with, it, with each other. Now that's gone um, and, and it's been replaced with a kind of um, sort of free speech uh, crusade, I suppose, that you can say anything to anyone at any time with no comeback. That to me is not the definition of liberty. That's the definition of Donald Trump's Twitter feed. Mm. And I, I believe that you need those, those other two parameters of equality and accountability to create a, a three-dimensional space where we can have a discourse with one another, a political discourse with our leaders, but also a social media discourse with one another in a way that we can be civil and we can, through deliberation, learn things about people we don't agree with. One of the things, um, and now getting to the, the nuts and bolts of the, of the essay or the pamphlet, um, one of the um, issues that you take up early in, in the essay is that the rise of neoliberalism and particularly its impact with the election of people like Margaret Thatcher in, in Great Britain and Ronald Reagan in the US. And we know the, the disaster of those, those policies. What I'm interested in here is what effect do you think neoliberalism had on the social fabric of your country? and other countries, because it seemed to me to implode those institutions of value that, w- that we had grown up with if we're post-war you know, generation. Yeah. Well, it's very interesting that we're talking about this this week, Tony, because obviously uh, Friday is the uh, 75th anniversary of the end of the Second World War in Europe, uh, VE Day. And there's been a lot of talk since uh, the lockdown began about what we refer to in Britain as the Blitz spirit. Yeah. And the blitz spirit is different things to different people. You know, it, it, some people it appears to mean don't criticize the government. That's really not what the blitz spirit was about. The blitz spirit is, is really um, a way for the, um, the, uh, the establishment in the UK to talk about uh, the collective responsibility because the blitz spirit was all about everybody working together. And it's, it wasn't something that ended when the war ended or when the blitz ended. It, it didn't end until Margaret Thatcher was elected because what happened was the people who experienced what we refer to as the blitz spirit, the people who experienced that, that the power of collectivism went on to vote for a Labour government, throw Winston Churchill out uh, in the general election in 1945 and found the welfare state. So the blitz spirit is really, you know, it belongs to the left. It's not a jingoistic idea. Um, obviously, on Friday, Vera Lynn will be singing Will Meet again. There'll be a lot of flag waving. It will be a bit Dad's Army, which is a bit... It's unfortunate it's gone through that period. But for those of us who, who were born close to the war and remember that spirit, that make-do-amend spirit, there was a very, very powerful social idea. And it was one that, that allowed successive governments, both Labour and Conservative, to 
uh, bring forward policies in that blitz spirit that narrowed the gap between the richest and the poorest in my country up until Thatcher was elected in 1979. And what happened then was the capitalists uh, uh, kind of uh, took over, but it was, you know, there was, standard of living was pretty good compared to how it was in the 1930s. So people began to forget and individualism came to the fore and uh, neoliberalism uh, began and, and the, the key aspect of neoliberalism for me is the fact that the market has all the answers that you you no longer take responsibility yourself as a government or as an individual you leave things up to the market and that is a, a rather it's a it's a poisonous idea it's a divisive idea and it's an idea that um seeks to avoid responsibility and accountability and that's why i think my my book and the idea of 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 accountability is also a response to neoliberalism because it's, it's neoliberalism because in the old days, old liberalism was all about goods and nations and nations trading with one another. But neoliberalism is about finance and globalization. And we're coming to, to realize now that globalization is a, um, an idea that if, if left to run its course, will rob nations of their, of their assets and of their taxes and of their, uh, their, um, uh, you know, their, mineral, their mineral wealth, their goods. So it, it needs some kind of response. And so accountability is, as an idea, I think, is one of those red lines that we should have in society to say thus far, no further. It's, um, I mean, it's actually so shocking and, and worrying to consider that, yeah, when you think about the election of um, Boris Johnson and certainly Donald Trump, and this is happening in other parts of the world, um, places like Brazil, is that, the lack of accountability on the part of people like Johnson and Trump, not only is it become rampant, it's a cause of celebration. So they don't even hide the fact that they disregard the public. I mean, this is a new phenomenon because at yeah. least, you know, Maggie Thatcher was this, yeah, the, the Iron Lady, but there would be a semblance of adhering to democracy, even if it wasn't in fact there. What we've got now is there's even, we don't care about this. And there's a there's a, almost a sense in Johnson and Trump that we want you to know that we don't care. It's, it's really alarming. Yeah, I, think, I think when you say disregard the public, it's disregard a section of the public. Yeah. What's different between Trump and Thatcher is when Thatcher was, um, let's, you know, when, when the, the British government introduced laws um, to uh, limit the liberties of uh, gays and lesbians. They were in a minority and they were also on the fringes of society. They weren't part of the mainstream. Now they're part of the mainstream, as are women, as are people of color, as are people of, uh, of um, different genders. And what, what's happening with Trump and what's happening with other people, as you mentioned, Bolsonaro in Brazil, to some extent, Donald, uh, 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 Boris Johnson, is that they are rejecting those people who have, have finally come to demand their rights. They realize, particularly in the United States of America, why angry men realize they're gonna be in a minority soon. And so over the last um, few decades, as they've lost power, the, the political establishment have invented the idea of the culture war in order to give those, those people who were formerly in the majority the sense that they are still winning by keeping people in place. You know, the idea of political correctness has been one of the most pernicious uh, uh, ideas of the last couple of decades, mostly because it doesn't really exist. There is no such thing as political correctness. It's uh, a trope used by reactionaries to police the limits of social change, to keep women uh, and, and their productive rights under control, to keep people of colour at arm's length, to keep uh, people of different genders uh, out of mainstream uh, culture. And I think this is, this is what's happened. If you look at the, the, um, the most powerful political movements of, uh, uh, of this century, um, Me Too, Extinction Rebellion, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Black Lives Matter, they look like sort of individual movements, but what links them is accountability. They're all accountability movements. They're all seeking to hold those in power to account. And I think that's what's missing from the narrative, something that links what seem to be disparate ideas to a central, not, not ideology or thesis or anything, but a, but a common cause, that accountability is the, is the place where we stand and make our fight. And if I can just make a, a particular 
distinction between responsibility and accountability. I believe these are two different things. I think responsibility is yours. You take responsibility. You take it for yourself. Accountability is different. You are held to account, which mm -hmm. the, the way we phrase that implies uh, someone else having some control over our behavior. So accountability is a much more sharp tooth uh, mm. idea than responsibility because responsibility, you can kind of fudge it for yourself because it's down mm. to you. Accountability, you can't fudge. And that's why people like Trump and people like Johnson have tried to avoid it all their lives. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that comes out in, in the essay. And I think the other issue there that you just raised, which, you know, for people who haven't read the book, when you're writing about liberty, you give some telling examples. So, you know, escape from slavery or, or freedom from bondage of being an ideal that has been with us a long time. You talk about um, the struggle for the vote throughout the 20th century as being another form of liberty. And what you have just raised, of course, is that um, movements like Me Too and Black Lives Matter, it is about not only making people accountable, but yes, a, 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 again, a struggle for liberty. I think one of the other things that's telling about the relationship between, I suppose, the economic issues and the, the socio-political issues in the essay is that when we think of what I would call a sort of a rampant and individual sense of freedom that is driven by the market, it also relies on the enslavement of many millions of people. So whether it be the, the transportation of, of migrants around the globe or people working in sweatshops to make sure that other people have a high-end fashion, the liberty of some is still coming at the enormous cost of others, yeah. isn't it? It is. Well, this is the trouble with the, the concept of liberty. It means different things to different people. Um, Abraham Lincoln drew attention to this during the American Civil War because he, he, he pointed out that, you know, the, the, the North was fighting for the liberty of, uh, of the slaves uh, to, uh, for the emancipation and, and that liberty. But at the same time, the, the South were fighting for the, the liberty to own slaves. And they believed that their freedom was, was the freedom to enslave people. So liberty alone is too contentious an idea to just be a, a, a single principle that we base our society, that we base our arguments, that we base our, our worldview on. It needs, it, it's absolutely crucial because, I mean, it's such a powerful idea. I mean, liberty literally empowers you. And that's why you, you have to have equality because equality is reciprocal. It, mm -hmm. it requires you to respect the liberty of others, to find that equal space. But even just those two ideas alone, liberty and equality, that just means, you know, everyone can shout at the top of their voices. There's no, you know, there's no, no one there to to hold the ring. And that's why accountability is really, really crucial because not only uh, does that empower you to hold the powerful or to hold the person you're talking to, to account, it's also reciprocal in that you yourself have to recognize that you are accountable. And, and when you're, when you're put on the spot, you have to respond to that. So that's, that's, that is what, you know, completes the circle of freedom if we're going to define freedom. Liberty alone is not enough. Liberty and equality even are not enough. Accountability is, the, is what gives freedom its teeth. It allows us as individuals to, to it gives us that fulcrum on which to change the world. It's accountability that changes the world. The other two get us in a position where we can talk about it and express it, but it's accountability that actually does the thing that unlocks the door and makes us all free. I think you raise this um, also in relationship to social media and accountability because you you talk about, of course, the value of social media and, and how it's been used by social movements like the Me Too movement, like Black Lives Matter. But also we know that in social media, it's one of those um, forums where we, again, think we can say sometimes what we like whenever we like to whoever we like, as you say. So. Social media seems to be one of those um, technologies that offers up enormous potential for collectivism or cooperation, but it also doesn't hold us accountable if we don't understand what we're engaged in or refuse to accept the equality of others. So it, it's a double-edged sword. Of course, like all, like all new technologies, it reflects, it's a deep, dark, truthful mirror that reflects humanity. With no, without social media, there will be no Greta Thunberg. There would be no Me Too. There would be no uh, um, uh, Black Lives Matter. 
You know, these would be ideas that, that had to go through the filter of editorials and we, we would not be able ourselves to directly engage in them. So let's not, let's not say it's, it's all bad. But the problem with it is that you're, you know, you're in a, uh, an individual uh, situation here. We're all sitting here at our, our um, uh, uh, whatever laptops or desktops or phones, but we're engaging publicly. And it's, we haven't quite worked out that protocols for, 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 for dealing with that. And, and I'm, I would like to suggest that liberty, equality and accountability can help us uh, to have a much more civil discourse. Liberty, the right to say what you want to say on Twitter. Equality, you know, when that person that you're talking to, is that person respecting your point of view? Mm -hmm. Are they taking what you're saying on board? Yes or no? That gives you one pointer for whether or not you should engage with this anonymous individual who's just turned up in your line. But, but more importantly, accountability. When you make a point and criticize this person, are they accepting that and responding in a way that is accountable or are they, are they just you know, shouting at you? Have they just gone off, off on one? And by using these parameters, you can very quickly work out whether or not this person is worth talking to or whether you should just block them or, you know, mute them or whatever. So, it, it, you know, I'd like to think that, that the three dimensions works in macro and micro, you know, we're, because mm -hmm. we are learning, as we've learned this morning with Christine, we're all learning new technologies. I've had to learn how to do home recording. I'm the most, I'm not techno-luddite. I'm 62 years old, but I'm, we're all learning these things. And the, and the, the social uh, aspect of social media, there are no rules. There are no rules. We each of us have to make our own parameters. And what I'm trying to suggest with the three dimensions is a, uh, you know, a template which you can use that, that you set to your own parameters. My personal uh, parameters, if people are interested, is um, people are, I'm willing to accept people's opinions that are offensive, but I'm not willing to accept people's opinions that are abusive. Mm -hmm. And how do you tell the difference between abusive and offensive? Offensive is when they make a political point that's really, you, you know, you really don't agree with. Abusive is a personal remark, any personal remark. That's not acceptable in, in, in social media discourse to me. That's where I butt out. So we all have to work, work out those parameters. You can't put rules on these things because it's such a, a, a what, they, what they right called the free market of ideas. Um, which they, you know, they don't really respect because they don't want to hear ideas from certain people. But, but we're, we're all of us learning. I'm, I'm, I would like to think that the idea of a, a three-dimensional space would be helpful in that because it also, in some ways, it also um, plugs into the debate around safe spaces, which is something that the, the free speech warriors get very, very angry about mm. because they think that the safe space is there to limit debate or censor debate. That's not true at all. The, 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 the protocols for a safe space are about ensuring that everybody gets to speak and that they're heard with respect and are not shouted down. And that's why the right don't like that because the right wanna come in, they wanna shout, they wanna bully, they wanna provoke. And when people turn around and say, well, that's not acceptable, they get upset, but you know, if you were running a pub and some bloke came in every night and started a fight, you know, you'd, you'd ban him. You'd say, sorry, mate, we're not gonna serve you. And, and that's, you know, that has to be the, the way that we, we deal with this because in the end, it's not the loudest voice that counts. You know, it's, the, it's how we express the collective will. And it's hard to, you know, to find that. It's like panning for gold. It takes a while to find. It's not just the first person that comes in. So I'd like to think that the, the three dimensions are, helpful to those people who are trying to create a space where we can uh, have uh, respect and reason and, and through deliberation, learn things about one another, speak to our opponents in a way which is respectful, but, but you know, disagree with one another. Thank you very much. I, I now want to, um, <clears throat> I want to ask a couple of questions that are really close to my heart on these issues. One is um, the link, what I consider the link between accountability and affiliation. So the, I've always been a trade unionist. When I was in the fire brigade, I was a shop steward in the fire brigade, and I always value that being um, a trade unionist. One of the things that has occurred in Australia and the UK and certainly in the US is the, what I would see as the breakdown of affiliation, which does make you accountable to, to a collective. So whether it be a trade union, 
whether it be a cooperative, and certainly in, in England, it could be as much as a local youth club, and we know the, th the closure of youth clubs because of a lack of funds. Local libraries are under threat. I think that people who enjoyed the post-welfare state and people who grew up in this, that generation, we had good resources available to us, and with those resources, we did, I think, understand the accountability to others, engage with that organisation. So certainly in Australia, I think for many people who feel, well, maybe politically isolated or, or disempowered, they don't have that affiliation that was important to us, certainly in the 70s and even into the 80s. Has that impacted on people's sense of collectivism in the, in the UK? I think it has very much so, very much so. I mean, the Labour Party in the UK grew out of the trade union movement in the end of the 19th century. And, you know, trade unions are all about accountability. They're about holding the bosses to account. Uh, that's the, the whole point of them. So consequently, that kind of got lost when, when Margaret Thatcher came in. And the, the neoliberal idea of uh, individualism has no room for empathy because you've really got to, you know, forget everybody else and just think about yourself. That's why anyone who, who talks about, um, you know, being compassionate gets dismissed as being woke. You know, this is another woke is another attempt to shut people up and stop people from pointing out that there are others in the room who, who need to be listened to and need to be respected. It's all about closing people down. And I think that um, loss of uh, collective responsibility has left us in a situation where, you know, we've, many people have been bereft from those organisations that, that used to give them the ability to hold the powerful to account. But the weird thing is, is the, the, the lockdown has seen a, a resurgence in mm. social solidarity. So that's, you know, uh, we have, I don't know if you use this phrase in, in Australia, but uh, we, they call it social distancing here. Yeah. The idea that you must stay too. Yeah, I, I would prefer spatial distancing. I would prefer spatial distancing and social solidarity. These mm. are the two things we need to be practicing right now. And social solidarity means making sure your neighbors got enough food or uh, making sure that, um, you know, you're, you're connected with, with what's going on in your local area and what's happening. And there's been a resurgence in that. Mm. And the weirdest thing is people, it's made people feel good about themselves. Yeah. People are now remembering that actually when you do work together, when, when you do the opposite of what neoliberalism asks you to do and get organized yourself, there, there's not only a, a, a social solidarity available to you there, there's an emotional solidarity. And there's not many places you can get that emotional solidarity now, one of the places you can get that is at a gig. You know, if you go to a concert, and this is not about, it's not about pol political songwriting, Tony, but if you go to a concert and your favorite singer is on stage, let's say, let's say Adele, and she's singing a song that you have invested a huge amount of emotion in. So it means something really deep to you. She's singing it, you're singing it, 5,000 other people are singing it. You, whatever emotion you've invested in that, is, is being accepted by everybody in the room. Yeah. It's being accepted. And you're getting a solidarity from that moment that you can take away with you. And, and, you know, and that's why people think music can change the world, because we've all felt that, uh, that solidarity of song. We've all felt it. And, you know, and I've, I, over the years, I've come to believe that um, it's, it's that empathy, empathy being the, the currency of music, whatever kind of music you're playing, you know, the ability of music to make you feel um, for an emotional experience that you haven't had or a literal experience that you haven't had or for someone who's in a difficult time, music can give you that connection. So it has, that's the power it has. And, and my job is to get the audience to understand that that feeling can be built on. It's not music mm. that changes the world. It's taking that feeling of empathy and mixing it with activism because when you mix empathy and activism you get solidarity mm -hmm. and that's where that's where all this comes from that's why that's why the right are so dismissive of empathy that's why the right are so uh, you know accuse people of virtue signaling because they know that empathy is the is the the the, the root of of social change when you can feel uh, a sense of you know at the moment you know, we're, we're relying on the lowest paid at the moment. We're relying yeah. on those people who are, who are, you know, keeping us connected, keeping us safe, keeping us healthy. People who's, you know, putting their health on the line for us. And we, you know, 
we've suddenly had our eyes open to this and, and when this all ends, we can't forget that. You know, we're gonna have to, you know, some of some people have lost their lives because they they made a dedicated I'm not just talking about people on the on the frontline health service, you know, uh, uh, bus drivers in London. Half a dozen bus drivers in London have died because they kept working during the the, the higher part of the pandemic. So this side this there's an there's an empathy out there at the moment that's that's really really powerful you know on thursday night we'll go out in the back garden and we'll all look at each other and we are all still here we're all clapped for our frontline workers and there's a feeling that we get when we do that that we've got to build on we can't go back to normal the new normal has got to be much more uh, focused on the, the the ability of uh, uh, collective solidarity social solidarity Thank you. Now, Billy, I'm going to ask you two more questions and then I'm going to hand back um, to Christine because she might have some audience questions. And both of these questions... I just want to say, if we, you know, if you, we just say, Tony, if you want to go on extra 15 minutes, Christian, I'm totally cool with that. Um, you know, if you want to make look, up that look, time, I'm look, happy to carry look, on as long as you like, mate. Okay. Um, so another issue that was really close to my heart, and this is about um, being working class. So I was in London last year during the election campaign and we know the, the fallout of the um, Brexit referendum. We know the fallout of the Trump election. So you would know that there is a very strong discourse that what's happened in Britain is the collapse of the Labor vote in the North. And this is down to working class people in the North not being smart enough to know what's good for them and moving across to the Tories and abandoning the Labor Party. So that's, yeah, that's a shallow, but that's a, a discourse. Now, when I was in London, uh, my son-in-law, Dan, we were looking at, um, I don't know if you know these, I think you would, the John Harris mini um, docks, which were anywhere. but Oh, very good, yeah, stuff. The Guardian. So, yeah, 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 yeah. So John Harris had travelled north and done a lot of interviews with people. And what struck me is, yeah, surely occasionally he came across an individual who wanted to sound off and fitted that sort of negative stereotype that the press was running with. But I'll tell you what happened. He went on to a, a housing estate, a council estate, a high-rise estate. And that's, I grew up in a high-rise estate in Melbourne, very similar to, to the British design. And he went into a, a community space where the women there were cooking a meal for each other. There was a lot of women and kids in this space. They had this remarkable event where they, they gathered together secondhand clothing from what we call op shops or charity shops. And they had a little um, fashion parade for people to be able to do stuff. And what struck me when I was watching it, one is that these women, and they were mostly women, they could have been the women I grew up with in, in Melbourne, they're the, very similar. And it struck me that they understand what solidarity is, they understand what connection is, they understand, I think, responsibility and accountability. And their reason for not voting Labor, and some of them had said they would vote Tory, but many of them had abstained, was based on a reality that they felt that they had actually been abandoned by New Labor. So their decisions, while externally might seem irrational, they were quite rational. And in the sense that mm. we might say, well, why would you, you know, give a vote to the Tories or by not voting, you help the Tories? But it wasn't as if these people didn't know what they were doing. And they, they knew that there were people accountable to them who had abandoned them because of their loyalty to the Labor Party had not been reciprocated. Yeah. It's Tina, I'm afraid, yeah. Tony. Tina, yeah. the neoliberal uh, ideology is underlined by Tina, which is an acronym for "There is no alternative." It comes from Margaret Thatcher. She she famously said, "There's no alternative to free market capitalism," and for the last thirty years, that's been the the the, the main offer at election time. Um, you know, whether, whether it's been the Democratic Party in America, the Labour Party in the UK, the Social Democrats in Germany, they've all tried to come to some accommodation with neoliberalism and allowing the markets to make all the decisions. So if you're in a situation, uh, in a, in a, you know, where you're in an abandoned city or an abandoned town where the industry's left and there's no jobs, you want change. You really want radical change. And that change is not being offered to you. And um, consequently, if you can't get change, but you can get chaos, you can get a, a vote for someone or something that will make those people in Westminster as uh, uncomfortable, feel as uncomfortable as you are. And, that, you know, that's, that's, I can understand why people vote for that. And when I say those people in Westminster, I mean in Washington as well, because I think both 
the election of Donald Trump and the, the, the victory of Brexit in our referendum were a rejection of the way the political class does things. You know, I'm sure uh, Hillary Clinton would have made a great president of the United States of America, but from the very beginning of her campaign, I was worried because she was not a change candidate. Mm -hmm. You know, over the, over the last few years in my country, the change candidates, uh, uh, the change options have done very, very well. Uh, and I don't just mean Brexit and Boris Johnson. I mean, uh, Jeremy Corbyn as well. Jeremy Corbyn was a change option. And the other four candidates for leader of the Labour Party back in uh, 2016 were all just more of the same. People are fed up with more of the same because they can see their um, standard of living is, is stagnating. The uh, young people in the UK now are going to be the first generation who are going to grow up to be poorer than their parents. People see the system needs to change, but it is incapable. Neoliberalism is incapable of changing because in order to change, it would necessitate market interventions. And that is ideologically impossible in neoliberalism. Of course, the pandemic has, <laughs> has kind of taken that idea, not just cracked it, but thrown it on the floor and shattered it into a million pieces. So all those excuses about, you know, keeping the, uh, balancing the economy uh, and all these other uh, ideas have gone out the window. So there's an opportunity now to uh, rebuild our economy in a way that is much more responsive to what people need. Because the bottom line, and we're about to find this out big time in the UK, probably in Australia as well, is that growth is driven by consumers, not by entrepreneurs. Mm. If working people don't have money in their pockets and they can't go out and buy stuff, the economy will collapse. And that's why it's always good to pay people proper money and, you know, Henry Ford always paid his, his workers really well because he wanted them to buy his damn cars mm. and drive them around and be proud. And that worked. So, you know, austerity has blown a big hole in that. And, and hopefully uh, we'll see a resurgence of uh, a much more socially responsible uh, economics. OK, I'm going to ask another question, then I'm going to hand over to Chris and then we'll come back to close. But. One of the other things that interests me about you is that so we're, we're at this point now where you have this, you know, this great essay, The Three Dimensions of Freedom. And we know, I mean, all, anyone who follows you will know that you, know, you grew up in Barking and it's a place that had obviously, you know, we're very impressionistic. And I know that you've gone back there quite a lot. And um, I remember you're involved in a campaign to make sure the, the, the BNP didn't get into power there, I think in about 2010 and 11. There's a beautiful YouTube, actually, of you are having a wonderful debate on the street with one of these right-wing nutcases and, and getting backed up by this by the people around you who, who weigh in to back Billy up. I really love that, um, which shows communal spirit right there. But what I'd be interested in, just a personal reflection, is that what do you think you learnt about or what did you, how did you develop as a kid growing up in that working-class community of barking that has stayed with you because I think I would want to say that one of the things that I, I really admire about you is, like I said before, an Aboriginal person would say you're a true fella. In other words, you've stuck at it. You haven't sort of gone off and, and lost your sense of value. So how did those values stay with you and how have they informed the way that you write and talk today? Well, the, the town I grew up in was a, a car town. There's a big Ford factory at Dagenham. And as a result of that, the unions were very strong. Uh, the council, I mean, the, the council where I live, uh, where I grew up in Barking, has been Labour since it was, the town was built in the 1930s when my dad was a kid. Um, and, you know, when we defeated the British National Party in 2010, every mm. seat on the council was Labour. So it's that kind of town. So there's always been that strong sense of, of um, uh, community there. And I think everybody, you know, should have an understanding of where they were, why they were born, where they were born, and what the what the what the, the the sort of social pressures brought them together. I've always tried to understand that. And my brother still lives there. My nephew lives in the house where we grew up. So I've always had a had a strong connection to that place. And you know, we we I, I'm not so we didn't have it hard when we were growing up. You know, my dad was worked in a warehouse. My mum uh, did lots of different jobs. And we you know. We, we didn't have a hard life growing up, but we had a very, work, a very strong working class ethic where we came from. My mum comes from a large family of Italian Catholics. Uh, and that sensibility never left me. So in, in 1984, when the miners went on strike, that wasn't a political struggle for me. That was a class about my class, about my people. 
uh, mm-hmm. take being being put under the under the cosh, and that's why I wanted to go and stand with them. I didn't really have a strong sense of ideology then, and my politics were what you would broadly speak of, you know, sort of personal politics. You know, I knew about racism. I, di- I didn't really know much about sexism because I'd had a working class, male working class upbringing. I had to learn a lot of that on the hoof during the strike. But, um, you know, that it was, it was that, the, the minor strike that politicized me and gave me that ideological connection. And I've, I've always tried to, you know, sh- sort of uh, uh, call it as I see it which is why I talk now about accountability rather than talk about socialism. I think mm-hmm. if you want to talk about socialism, you have to spend the first hour or so explaining why that doesn't necessitate the baggage of totalitarianism that comes with it. But I found find when talking to people that if you talk about ideas such as empathy, uh, compassion, accountability, uh, it connects a lot quicker and you, you, you have a lot more scope to put ideas across. Now, some of my old Marxist friends will, will sort of like shrug and say, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, avoiding the, the, the obvious aspects of, of uh, political philosophy. But, you know, these things change and people's perspectives change. And, and, I, and as I've got older, my perspective has changed, but it hasn't changed in the sense that I've sort of don't feel anyway that I've moved my politics, but other other ways of doing politics has, have come up and I've had to respond to that. But I've always come back to that basic fundamental idea of, of a collective responsibility that's come from having a working class upbringing where, where, where uh, you know, social solidarity was an absolute key part of our community in the 1960s and 1970s growing up in East London. I've not never forgotten that. And so I've always tried to, to connect with my politics, with that kind of idea, rather than a, a narrow, and I would sometimes argue blinkered ideological idea that sets out exactly the way the world should be. I'd rather try and get to grips with the way the world is. Okay, thanks, Billy. So what we're going to do now, I'm going to hand back to Chris, who's going to ask, um, get a couple of questions from our audience, and then I'll come back and we'll just close with a couple of comments and maybe, maybe a song. You're going to sing, Tony. What are you going to yeah. sing for us? Well, you can I'd accompany love to hear, me, Billy, up, you know, if you want to lose the audience, just let me sing. Haven't you heard? It's impossible to, to do a duet on Zoom. Have you not heard? It goes all over the place. Anyway, let's, let's see what Christina says and we'll see. We'll see. I'll, I'll drink some more and we'll see how we go. Okay. Hey, everybody, thank you so much for your questions. They've been coming in thick and fast, and a lot of them, actually, Mr. Bragg has already answered. There's certainly a lot of questions. Oh. That there are Give me phone. Let me just shut my phone off. Sorry. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Listen. I'm all open for any kind of tech kind of mishaps tonight. Later. Sorry, sorry, sorry. The phone. No, nobody, nobody rings up in a moment. Someone would ring up just as I'm about to go live with everybody else. Apologies, folks. Oh, please. <laughs> You're speaking to me. Hey, Billy, so lots of people have asked, what's going to happen at the next election? Why did Trump get in? Why have you got the government you've got? I'm going to leave those aside. But I am going to ask you something that uh, Anthony has asked and that's a theme that's been followed up by lots of different people. He's saying that Thatcherism gave us great culture, music, comedy, but what will this era give us? What will Trump's, Johnson's and Morrison's legacy give us? What sort of version of young, angry will be happening? What's your feeling on that? Well, I think... um... Whoever, whoever's phoning me up has got, probably got the answer to it. And I was hoping that my partner might pick up the phone somewhere in the house, but I'm going to have to stop it again. I'm sorry about this. <laughs> there you go. It's gone. I it's actually fine. love this. Um, yeah, the, the legacy. Well, I think, I think you know, people do, uh, do ask about this and, and where things are going. And I can only say to you that um, I get a lot of uh, inspiration from the uh, student school strikers and their focus on the environment. I think they, they, they've, they're on the big issue, the issue that we're all going to have to face after we get through the pandemic and come out the other side. And their, radicalism, their radicalism really inspires me. I, I was uh, on tour in um, uh, December in Cambridge on the day of the, the student school strike there and marched with them. And this was during our general election as well. And they were led, their convener was 10 years old. <laughs> and led us through the streets of uh, Cambridge and decided, these kids decided to march through the main shopping centre, the Lion Centre in Cambridge. And um, we got into the Lion Centre, we got into the middle of it, and they stopped and began chanting, adults, adults, use your vote. I mean, this is like two weeks before the general election. I have not felt that empowered since Rock Against Racism. There was some kid whacking a cowbell. It was like... (laughs) 
you know, it just was incredible. And the faces of the shoppers were like, what the heck is this? Okay. So I, I, I draw a lot of energy from that. They're very kind to me. They invite me to come along and sing all the old songs. I have a kind of a Pete Seeger role, which I'm totally cool with. <laughs> um, because the, these kids need to know that, that people have fought these fights before and have, and have won, you know, because you always think you're the first people to, you know, when you're discovering like politics. Doesn't it? Exactly, yeah. So, so I, I get a lot of encouragement from that. You know, Trump is a blip. Brexit is a blip. People are coming together and I, you know, I'm a, you have to be, if you're going to be a, a socialist or progressive, uh, you have to recognize the glass is half full. It's absolutely crucial. So there's an, another theme in the, a lot of the questions that people are asking you, Billy, they're asking, how do you make sense of all the fake news? How can you tell the difference between fake news? I know that you're talking about giving hope and, and taking hope from the young generation and all the, the ways that they are continuing to fight, but how can we as voters make sense of the fake news? That's a real problem, isn't it? Um, uh, the bugger. I, yeah, it is indeed. I think, you know, there's, there's two ways of looking at it. There's total fake news, absolute fake news, such as, um, you know, the uh, corona, coronavirus is caused by 5G network. That's a big popular one in the UK at the moment. That's mm. utter and total fake news. But also there's other, there's other hypocrisies that are about uh, news management and um, different perspectives. And they are... They are hard to, to get a grip with. But I try to, I mean, I get most of my perspectives off of Twitter. Um, I don't again, get engaged in a lot of the bish bash bosh on it. It can be a bit harsh, but I follow particularly younger activists. I get, you know, I get a lot of perspective how politics is articulated from them and through their perspectives, have a better understanding of what's going on. In the old days, I would have got that from the editorial of the New Statesman or somewhere like that. But they're, you know, and so long as you kind of change up your, the people that you're listening to on Twitter from time to time and don't get stuck with people, it is possible to get a, a, a broader view of really what's going on around fake news. But really the, 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 the antidote to fake news uh, is, uh, is accountability. The real problem, I think, is not so much fake news. There always was fake news. The real problem that we face, all of us who want to make the world a better place, is cynicism. And unfortunately, there's a lot of cynicism out there on the net. But the real cynicism that is a real problem is our own cynicism, our own sense that nothing will change and nobody gives a shit about this stuff. We have to overcome that. So it's really about how you as an individual every day think, you know, overcome the fake news, overcome the, the hypocrisy, overcome, you know, the front page of uh, the, the, all the tabloid newspapers, pictures of Boris Johnson's baby on a day when, you know, 28,000 people have died from coronavirus. You've got to overcome your own cynicism and keep committed to the basic fundamental ideals of, of humanity and, uh, and empathy. That's tough because, because the, 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 the best antidote to cynicism, I believe, is activism. And so it's how you, how you connect with the, with the struggle and what ways you, you can find to do that, that. That's the best way to deal with fake news. Make news yourself. I love that. I love that you said that. There's so many other questions. They're all following a very similar chain of thought. I'm going to hand you back to Tony. I want to say thank you. I don't want to say thank you. Thank you, really. Oh, a pleasure, Christine. Thank you for, for hosting us. I wish I could have met you in person and, yeah. uh, and we could have got together uh, tonight in Melbourne. But I hope we'll, we'll have the opportunity to do uh, that in February, I hope. That's going to happen. That's going to happen. I'll try, I'll try and write. Maybe we'll talk about Skiffle next time. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, Billy. Um, while, while, while you consider whether, I suppose if you if you don't if you can't sing, I'm sure you can strum that guitar there in the corner. But while you're thinking about that, I, I want to close with a couple of remarks. Um, firstly, thank you so much for your time. Um, we know that even though we're in lockdown, I'm sure you're busy. So we want to thank you very much. Um, personally, I want to thank you for excusing me for hugging you that day on Smith Street without permission. It was the greatest day of my life when I came home and told my wife, Sarah, who is English and loves you also, that um, I had hugged um, Billy Bragg on Smith Street. She, she thought I was making the whole thing up. It was fake news. Um, also, we do need you to come back here and play at the um, Croxton Hotel because you are my ticket back into that venue after 40 years of um, well, being allowed so I've got some bad news for you, Tony. We've upgraded it to the forum, mate. Well, I'll still come. Sorry, mate. You. I'll still come. Really sorry, dear. Um, and finally, I want to say that this is a, a great, great book. It's an important book. 
Um, I've read it several times and I really hope it gets the audience that it, it requires because it is a book that we require. I think that one of the things that we feel when we're faced with the, the, the craziness of the political world that we see sometimes when Donald Trump's spouting at a press conference or Boris Johnson or anyone else, by the way, and that includes some politicians in Australia, we can become incredibly disheartened and I think we can face a sense of, of isolation. And I think that what you're arguing for and what you're, you're suggesting in this book is the way that we overcome that sense of isolation or, or sense of being marginalised is we have to look to other people. We have to find a sense of collectivism that will help us through those struggles. And it is the way forward for us. So I really want to thank you. It's, it's been such a wonderful conversation. And you're going to tell me now if you're going to strum, sing or do nothing. Well, I suppose I could. As, as, I should have hidden that guitar, shouldn't I, you before we started? So, well, you could have oh, played oh, the mandolin. Yeah, the mandolin or the dulcimer on the wall there. So yeah. let's keep it in tune. I don't know if I'm. Oh, it's in tune, Tony. You're in luck. Is this just for me, is it Billy, or everyone else? For everyone else. <laughs> If you want to make the weather You have to take the blame If sometimes dark clouds fill the sky And it starts to rain Folks complain And though your head may tell you to run and hide Listen to your heart and you'll find me right by your side because I keep faith I keep faith I keep faith, I keep faith in you, yes I do, I keep faith in you. If you think you have the answer, don't be surprised. If what you say is meant with anger, Tempt and lies No matter how hard you may want to Just walk away Reach out, you'll find me there beside you All of the way Because I keep faith I keep faith I keep faith I keep faith in you Yes I do, I keep faith in you All the dreams we shared I never knew no one who cared about these things the way that I've seen you It doesn't matter if this all falls off a cliff together we are gonna see it through Now I know it takes a mess of courage go against the grain you have to make great sacrifice for such little gain so much pain and if your plans have come to nothing 
washed out in the rain let me rekindle all your hopes and help you start again because I keep faith in these troubled times I keep faith in these uncertain days I keep faith I keep faith in you yes I do I keep faith in every single one of you I keep faith in you yes I do I keep faith in every single one of you I keep faith in you yes I do I keep faith in you I keep faith in you I keep faith social Julie, solidarity thank you thank you thank you so much um, the only thing I want to say in closing is that I wish um, you and your family um, safety during this time and your community both down where you live and of course your old haunted um, barking. And we know that we'll come through it. And as you say, to keep faith and we'll see you on the other side. We'll certainly see you in Australia. And we're just so lucky to have spent time with you tonight. So please take care. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for, for turning up and listening in, tuning in and for persevering with our little hitch. Thanks very much to Christine for connecting us and reconnecting us. And I hope to see you all uh, next year. Stay safe and uh, stay socially connected. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you Bye. so much. And to our wonderful Tony Birch. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tony. Thanks a lot, You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. While there, you can sign up to our e-news or to receive the free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this podcast was provided by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty is never ceded.